This is how we overcome it. Moving on, keep it up. Reaching to the world. Arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice. Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. So friends, we are in the middle of a series that we have been calling The Unspoken God. Um, How do we experience and connect to a God who doesn't speak to us in the way that you and I can speak to one another? Um, But how do we we listen? How do we connect? Um, So previously we have talked of you know um talked about some god sightings and some silent meditations and other ways that we can listen for god but where are we going today today we're going to talk about um what puts on very scary and intimidating when we use technical terminology about it um uh, a category of theology a way of talking about god by talking about what god isn't or by um talking about the limits of our language about God. Classically, um, there have been sort of two approaches to thinking or talking about God when you're talking about the big abstract systematic theologians. One is called cataphatic, which is when you talk about what God is like or say positive affirmations about God. God is mighty. God is immortal. God is wise, blah, blah, blah. And the alternative is by saying what things God is not like. It's sometimes called apophatic. Uh, theology, or um, if you want to get all Latin about it, the via negativa, what things you can say or or ways we describe God by sort of removing the space of what God isn't like. In in a way, it's almost like, I don't know, did you ever get to do like in a uh, Sunday school or Bible school or craft art class, a batik, where you um, put down like wax or glue or something in a design and then you dye the fabric and then you wash out the glue or the wax and what's left are blank spaces where the dye didn't go and it can make a design or a pattern or something. Or like if you ever colored Easter eggs and you use the Mm -hmm. wax crayon and then where the wax was, the design, the color doesn't go. And the way you can make really cool designs like that and it's by where the color isn't, by what's sometimes in artistic circles called negative space. And that that's a thing we do with God too, by talking about what God isn't like. And sometimes that sheds more light or at least a different kind of light than making a bunch of assertions about what God is or how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, all that kind of stuff. Maybe it would be helpful for us to offer some concrete kind of examples, maybe even from the biblical witness. Are there are there places that might be helpful for folks who this is all brand new way of thinking or talking about God um, that would be helpful? But why would it might why might it be helpful to say what God isn't or what are some examples of what that looks like in the in the Bible? So I think my the place that my brain immediately goes to is uh, Martin Luther's small catechism and how he often uses the opposite to help uh, his students get a deeper understanding of what the Ten Commandments are. Okay. So um, the way that Martin Luther approaches like, um, well, what does it mean to to not murder? You know, thou shall not murder. What does that mean? And then he immediately goes into how do you give life? to your neighbor. It's my making sure that your neighbor has enough to eat, has enough uh, to thrive. Um, And like, that's how Martin Luther kind of gets at Mm -hmm. this is what it means for the 10, for the 10 commandments. Um, And so one of my 
deep understandings of who God is, is God is love, which mm-hmm. is like a verse in uh, one of the uh, John letters, yeah, letters to John. John. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, it's sometimes like love is such a huge, broad concept of like, what does it mean to love mm-hmm. and to be loved? Um, I think it's an easier thing to grasp of what love isn't. Yeah. Right. Like love isn't, love isn't abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody is regularly hitting you, that's not love. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody is purposely withholding food from you, that's not love. Yeah. If somebody is continually trying to make you feel small and worthless, that's not love. Um, you know, so I think it's an easier thing to define often what love isn't. Yeah. Um, as, as you're mentioning that, it makes me think of how Paul does some of that in that famous chapter uh, about love that mm-hmm. everybody knows from wedding services from 1 Corinthians 13. And often we remember the first parts where he talks about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. But a good amount of that list is also be negative. It's what love mm-hmm. isn't, right? So it's love is not boastful or envious or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice mm-hmm. in wrongdoing. Um, so that when Paul gets to describing what love is like, and he, you know, it's his choice. How how, how is he going to describe it? A good chunk of that list is ruling out. It's not this. It's not this. It's not this. Exactly for your point there. That if, yeah, if you're acting in a manipulative way, if you're being resentful or bitter, that ain't love, folks. Um, and that sometimes that's a helpful way of talking about God more broadly too. I love using that scripture verse as a council devotion, mm-hmm. where we replace the word love with God. Mm-hmm. And sure. like, because again, like. God is love. So this is mm-hmm. this is kind of gives us at least a glimpse of maybe who God is. You know, love yeah. is patient or God is patient, God is kind, God isn't blah blah yeah. blah. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's a nice, it's a nice glimpsing, yeah, I think, of who God is. You'll get moments like that too in the scriptures where um I'm thinking in particular in the prophets where somebody will say something like, um, God doesn't need to be fed by your sacrifices because God doesn't get hungry like you mortals do. Or, um, you know, uh, God's not always changing God's mind the way you human beings who are mm-hmm. fickle with your love, you know, like that God's faithful. You know, God isn't like us human beings who whose affections change. So there, there's often a time when uh, the prophets will have that sort of moment of like, you guys are thinking of God more more like just a big human being. And God isn't like that in some important ways. God isn't flaky. God isn't wrathful. God isn't in those kind of things. And we need we need those reminders. Yeah, God, there's there a there's a, an important um, insight of the 20th century uh, theologian Karl Barth, um, who felt like the theology of the 19th century had gotten, uh, had kind of tried to tame God. And he said that God isn't just, man that's the way they talked in 20th century uh, theology god isn't just man written in big letters <laughs> um but i think there's something important about that that god isn't just take what it is to be human and make it bigger um because human beings have a lot of ways in which we're fickle or not dependable or unreliable and the scriptures instead insist on god who is supremely faithful who is um not constantly um a- affected by how god's mood is or whether god his blood sugar got too low that there are ways that God is different, importantly different than what our lives are like. And acknowledging that is actually a thing to be hopeful about. 
I guess I even think about the essential commandment in the beginning of the Exodus story uh, where there's the pretty clear don't make a graven image commandment that is meant to prevent and avoid the ways that we want to kind of tame and domesticate God. And, uh, you know, plenty of other ancient Middle Eastern, Near Eastern cultures had, uh, you know, God is like a bull or God is like the rain or God is like the sun. Um, and that it's an important and rather unique choice among those ancient cultures that the God who speaks in Exodus is like, don't make a graven image uh, and saying it's me because then you're going to get confused and think that I'm only like that bull or like mm -hmm. that you know, the sun or the moon or, you know, what have you. Um, and so the the insistence on don't make an image and say that this is what God is, is is an awareness of the, the ways we kind of make idols out of the, the things or the statements we claim about God sometimes. Are there other ways that this kind of way of thinking about God uh, have either been helpful in your own life or you've had experience with or ways that we might need this in our time? This is almost reminding me of American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Mm. And like, you know, the, um, all right, full disclosure, I have not read the book. I know this primarily because Steve has talked about it on this <laughs> podcast before. <laughs> of Like, I, I have this image of my brain of where like all of the gods are gathered together. And like, there's like a ton of Jesuses because different traditions have imagined Jesus a very specific yeah. way and those yeah. ways are not always compatible with one another mm -hmm. um and I think that that's something that we run the risk of doing of limiting God by how we envision or see God right like we kind of put God in a box sometimes right, right. and I think it's important to occasion to, to remind ourselves that yeah. God is beyond our understanding. And so all we can really hope for is to get glimpses of God and not like have God set in stone of like, yeah. oh yes, this is exactly who God is. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't think that we can fully know God. Mm -hmm. I think that's a helpful way of talking about this, that, that the idea of via negativa or apophatic theology is at its best sort of the guardrails that prevent us from, either domesticating God or thinking that we've got exhaustive truth about, yep, we finally dissected God, like, you know, the seventh grade frog dissection in biology class thing. And um, that God is more mysterious like that. And that maybe you lose something when you attempt to dissect it. I, I think there's a, there's a, an insight of Douglas Adams, the guy who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. And at one point he says, some things get ruined when you try and dissect them. If you take a living cat and you dissect it, what you have is a non-working cat. And that part of the mystery of catness is that it's got to stay together and whole, but you can't get into it because it stops being what a functioning cat is. Um, and I think like that our attempts to try and dissect how God works, and often we will do it in sort of propositional, doctrinal way. Ah, we've pinned down God is eternal and omniscient and not and okay, but you end up making more of a uh, an abstract diagram rather than the living someone that we meet in the scriptures. And I guess that's an important thing that in the scriptures, we meet a who, not a what, you know, and I think that's important, mm -hmm. but that requires being able to say, God has to remain to some degree mystery with the capital and capital M and not, I know God's favorite color and bank account number. 
I can remember when I was in undergraduate, and this will reveal a couple of biases of mine over the years, I suppose, uh, but I'll lay these cards on the table. Um, I, I was uh, in a school being taught by a lot of Reformed Calvinist uh, professors at that time, and they all very proudly were like, yeah, God, there's some, like, God is um, 100% sovereign, and God is 100% um, impassable, like the classic theologian said. And what that meant is that God can't experience emotion. Like, you know, so this is these are things we say about God. God doesn't experience emotion. God's eternal and outside of time and sovereign and controls everything. And then you'd come across a story where, like, well, what do you do about when the book of Jonah, where it says God was sorry that God, you know, or God changed God's mind? And, or what does it mean where it says that God, you know, weeps or grieves over the people, you know, who turned away? And they'd have to say well that's not really what god is like because god is dead and they'd go back to their you know their their oppositions god is impassable mm -hmm. god is eternal god is sovereign and therefore and to me it always felt like but when the stories say but this this other more richer more complicated nuance of god you need to be able to say this but the story talks about things that sort of bust apart your propositions what are you gonna what are you gonna do about that um and to me it feels important to be able to say if god's real and a who not a what God's always got to be bigger than those propositions. And, and I always kind of chalk that up to the Bible is written by a variety of people in a variety of times. And they're all trying to wrestle with their understanding mm -hmm. of who God is mm -hmm. and how God has interacted with them as a community. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like, how, like how God is active in the world and so like, again, like their understanding has varied through different times of like, well, what did this mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's a continual wrestling with trying to understand who God is when, again, God is so big that that's right. impossible. Right. And again, if we're talking and, about, well, go ahead. Erica. I can see like where some of your professors are coming from in a sense, especially not to say the Old Testament God is different than New Testament God. Let me put that out there first. But like in the Old Testament, we don't have God, the personhood of God like we do in Jesus in the New Testament. Because mm -hmm. how do you make that argument when with the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept? Sure. Well, and I mean, I would even say like to read even just the Hebrew scriptures, you get a picture of a God that's more complex than just a bunch of propositions because it's, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, it's uh, God who's described like a jilted lover in the prophet Hosea, or it's God who's, you know, heartbroken uh, when the people turn away or God, uh, you know, and so, yeah, the, the, there it's, it's always richer than God can't feel because God's impassable or God. I mean, like, and there's plenty of stories in the Hebrew scriptures that give this sense of, um, god walking along beside the people rather than decreeing i know how it's going to turn out from the beginning sometimes you'll get that sort of eternal distant god but sometimes you get this i'm the god who's walking with you through this um and again that that feels like that's messier or more complicated than i've reduced god to these principles or propositions of what god is mm -hmm. so maybe the value here is keeping us from getting too big for our britches keeping us from like claiming that we know definitive final answers about god um, on the on the flip side, Christians have classically said there are some things we can know about God because we come to see what God is like in Jesus. And I guess I'm wondering, like, how does our experience of Jesus uh, change the way we talk about God or put like some serious qualifiers on God? Because some things that we might say about God generically, God doesn't get hungry. That sounds yeah, God doesn't get hungry. And on the other hand, God in Jesus 
gets hungry <laughs> or God is immortal and deathless. And yet there's God in Jesus buried in the grave. Um, how, how does that, how does that affect your, your either personal theology or the ways you think and teach and preach? It's complicated. <laughs> it, it does. Cause you know, including the things that you mentioned, Dave, you know, God doesn't get hungry. You know, God's immortal. I, I think of the line from Isaiah, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Right. And mm -hmm. yet Jesus took naps. Right. On boats Lots in the middle of storms. <laughs> you right. know. Um, and it, yeah, Sarah, you're right. It, it complicates things because now you have put God into human form. And, here's and so the necessarily God, I, I, I don't want to say this without being like, um, heretical but yeah. god changes when you put god into human form and god made flesh like that was presumably a first time for god right well and and like earlier you made the point there about not putting god in a box and yet in a sense what's the incarnation but god being willing to live inside <laughs> a box of humanity you know like that's weird to say god can't fit in our boxes but god can choose to live within the box of humanity for and and if we're convinced that that's a permanent arrangement with god that now god is forever or maybe has from eternity past always had that connection to humanity even beyond our experience of time that to some degree god is willing to choose to uh live within the confines of human experience that that's kind of mind-boggling and again i i guess this makes sense like why in early christianity as we were trying to figure out how we related to judaism a lot of ancient jewish thought was like it sounds like you're you know just worshiping a human being that sounds like that's breaking mm -hmm. the one rule you don't worship other gods they, i i can get why it was so complex and why they fought so long and hard to develop what became the creed right the God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, that Jesus is God and human at the same time, because that, that in, required whole new categories, whole new ways of thinking about what it means to be God. And I think there's a, a huge difference between us trying to limit God and put God into a box and God being willing to limit God's self. Yeah, I think that's just it. I think that's, that, that's the $50,000 question, right? Yeah. You know, because it's not that Jesus doesn't have all the power that God the Father has or the God the, the Spirit has. He does, but he's willing to limit himself in the use of the, of said power. And to say that, at, that there's a difference between us imposing things on God and God ch willingly choosing the smallness of humanity or the weakness of or the, the foolishness mm -hmm. of going to a cross, to me, that that's exactly... Where where I think this conversation needs to go, and that it, that's also I think the where uh, that that earlier theologian I mentioned, Karl Barth, went that like we can't go around saying that God is just humanity written in big letters, but God can choose the smallness of human life, and that's different. Mm -hmm. That's not just saying God is just a, like a a big bully human being. God actually, for all of God's vast otherness, comes to be relatable in the human life of Jesus, knowing what it is to get hungry, to die, to be born, all those kinds of things. I guess I, I think it's it's good as just in and of itself that our our god talk our theology is always messy like this and that's not mm -hmm. it's not uh just a problem to be resolved uh oh this is complicated how do we find the one right wording that will tie all these loose ends up and make it 
understandable, but it's important that God never be quite within our grasp because a, a God that you could completely understand is an idol, right? I mean, like a God that you've yeah. completely got figured out, that's certainly something you've invented. <laughs> um, but rather, uh, my goodness, if the universe is, is and just the laws of physics are beyond our complete grasp, then it would seem like, yeah, God who, who made the universe should also be beyond our grasp as well. And for all the things that we can list positively about God, God is A, B, and C. And all the things we can list negatively, God is not X, Y, and Z. Is what makes God worthy of worship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important piece too, that when, when you'll get voices in the scripture saying things like, God isn't fickle or flighty like human beings are, that's a way of saying like, this is why God is worth paying attention to and being in relationship with, because God's not going to change God's mind tomorrow and say, I loved you yesterday, but today I don't because I'm like that. Or that to say that God um, is reliable or doesn't fall asleep. That's that's not just random factoids about God, but to say your life is safe in God's hands because God won't fall asleep on you or that God is not, um, you know, a, a silent, mute, you know, object made of gold or bronze like the idols are or that God isn't just like an impersonal force. You know, that those claims are reasons why it's worth being in relationship with God as opposed to the other things that we do relate to that let us down. Maybe in the end, and I don't really mean to end us on a rickroll, but like maybe that's the whole point of all this is that anytime the biblical writers do that and say what God isn't like, it's to be able to say God is never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to make you cry. Or like it's it's that song by Rick Astley, right? It, and that like really in, in the end, the point, the reason that those biblical writers say those things about God is basically to come back to God's the one who's faithful. God won't let you down. God won't you know, make you cry <laughs> and insert the rest of that lyric, you know, that, that song. Right. But like, that's, that's why that song works. And that's in, in a sense, all the Bible's ever been doing when it says what God isn't like. Well, on that note, we look forward to seeing you again next week on Crazy Think Talk. Bye. <laughs>